I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens. And perhaps most of all, everyone out there and others across the breadth of this nation are 43 million Americans with disabilities. You have made this happen. All of you have made this happen. The bill I'm signing will set in motion reforms that generations of Americans have fought for and marched for and hungered to see. And Fucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members Corinne G, Jennifer S, G Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Asshole, Awesome A, and it's okay. When the world is a mean and nasty little place, finding the truth can be a little tricky. Don't go punch yourself in the face, just listen to it on Fucking Quickie. I suppose it's counterintuitive to slow things down with a quickie, but here we are. We've been on quite a roll lately, unpacking some big-ticket items like Christian nationalism, the Convention of States movement, Hollywood and war, student debt, recessions. We've also had a couple of more direct political episodes covering conservative and moderate Democrats and progressive prospects for the midterms. So I want to build on the latter theme this week to look more closely at the legislative process in Congress because I feel like details get lost in ideological and political discourse. We live in a world of headlines, algorithms that feed us information like pellets in a rat trap, sloganeering, and propaganda machines. Sometimes it's important to stop, listen, recalibrate, and organize. We spend a lot of time criticizing Congress, and by we, I mean everyone. Pundits, podcasters, average voters, everyone. And to be fair, much of the criticism is warranted. But one might argue that it's slightly misplaced. Recently, we've been critiqued by listeners who rightfully point out that they live in areas of this country that are deeply entrenched in conservatism, or what is deemed as such these days. So many of the ideas that we promote aren't all that palatable in red state America. Even under the most favorable of circumstances, crafting, amending, and wrestling legislation across the finish line is an arduous task, and that's by design. But Congress is still a place where ideologue can meet intellectual, can meet pragmatist, and good things can happen. You've heard me talk optimistically about representatives like Ro Khanna, Jamie Raskin, Katie Porter, Pramila Jayapal, Ayanna Presley, Earl Blumenauer, and others who are putting in the work and have a lot to offer the nation. Now, they're not perfect, but it would be foolish to dismiss them in broad strokes as shallow and ineffectual, even if it feels like it. The 24-7 pundit class barking at the moon and shifting topics on a daily basis gives the impression to many of us that Congress is stuck in neutral. Then there are moments when it moves quickly, as it did when it sent relief to millions of Americans during the pandemic, funds to Ukraine, or sadly, tax cuts to the wealthy. When Congress is aligned and motivated, for better or for worse, it demonstrates to us that it does have the capacity to act quickly. And I think this adds to the frustration when it just sits on bills that seem to make a ton of sense. So I wanted to examine a few of these, quote, make sense bills and pull back the curtain to center our attention on some pretty fundamental proposals. So in today's quickie, we're going to look at three different bills or groupings of bills that represent the array of legislation that exists. Something old, 
something big, and something new. And then I have a proposal for how we should attack ongoing legislation, but we'll talk about that later. In terms of structure, I'll provide a summary of the bill, tell you who's behind it and who's not, where it stands, what it does, what it theoretically costs, and what's at stake. Hopefully, by the end, we'll all be a little more informed, a little more appreciative of the challenges even the most courageous and skilled members of Congress face, pushing an agenda forward, and how best to organize our efforts to support our elected officials. UNFTR! The 117th Congress of these here United States of America. Congress has introduced anywhere between 7,000 and 26,000 bills per two-year session over the past 50 years. This is a staggering amount of legislation. Of course, as we've covered before, most of the bills are procedural. Small changes to the U.S. Code, updates to existing legislation, naming of post offices and other government buildings, etc. Now, the success rate, meaning enacted legislation signed into law by the president, is extremely low anywhere between 4% and 9% when you consider bills incorporated into others. For example, there were literally hundreds of measures enacted through the tremendous COVID-era bills and the It's Fuck For Sure bill. We used to call this pork. In terms of standalone bills, the percentage of passage is even lower. With respect to volume, the number of bills usually depends on how much trouble we're in. Like, there were a lot of bills in the 1970s. The success rate typically reflects control of Congress in alignment with the executive branch. That's why the first few months of a new administration that also has control of both houses of Congress are so critical. Outside of emergency situations, the two most important factors behind successful legislative periods are momentum and control. Landmark pieces of legislation like the Voting Rights Act, the Affordable Care Act, the recovery bills under Trump and Biden are extremely rare. But when they come, they're game-changing. Consequential legislation on this scale has enfranchised millions of people, given health care to millions more, undergirded the entire U.S. economy during a pandemic. At this moment, there are a handful of really important bills that would also be historic, if only we had a Congress willing to step up and make it happen. If only. There are precious few productive weeks left in this, the 117th Congress, believe it or not. About three weeks in June, about the same in July. Then it's pretty much recess time until Labor Day. But from Labor Day on, in the waning days of a Congress, there's typically little movement on the really big stuff. Sure, we'll name a few more post offices and update some expiring legislation, or maybe even authorize more weapons for conflicts abroad. And who knows, maybe, just maybe, we'll sneak in a few wins under the wire. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. But for the most part, we're staring down the barrel of intractability once the dog days of summer set in. Because by the end of summer recess, Congress will slowly downshift into lame duck status. If you recall last year when the Progressive Caucus lost the battle to pair the It's Fucked For Sure bill with Build Back Better, we talked about splitting up some of the more pressing matters from BBB and setting them as standalone efforts. Package them up with patriotic titles, go all in with a concerted publicity campaign, dominate the airwaves for a cycle, and put everything behind these bills one by one. Not pursuing this approach is just one of my criticisms of Pelosi and Schumer. It's not like they can't do it or don't have desk drawers filled with model legislation ready to go. 
You saw how quickly they were able to package up legislation to codify reproductive rights, even though they knew it would fail. They did this to get every incumbent on record so they could use it against them in the midterms. And I actually applaud that. Well, I applaud it with a slow clap because every Democratic administration blew the opportunity to do this when they really had momentum and control, so it's a little late to say the least. But that's part of the rationale when a Congress reaches this near lame duck juncture. Even unsuccessful attempts to get something passed gives progressives campaign fodder to unseat conservative Democrats in primaries and win out in the general. So here's how we're going to approach this episode. In all reality, it's already too late to break apart some of the good stuff from Build Back Better. Mind you, it's not hard to do, just impractical. But when you consider what non-emergency legislation has to go through in order to reach the president's desk, we're left with precious few options to move the needle before the midterms. That's why I wanted to examine what bills, if any, theoretically had a shot. But I also wanted to dig into signature pieces of legislation that continue to be kicked down the road to remind us of what is really possible. Here's how I went about putting this together and some key stipulations behind my arguments. The selected bills originated in the House, made it through committee, include amendments, and have passed the chamber. Only bills were chosen, no resolutions or amendments. Similar bills exist under different names and might also be making their way through committees, but these are further along. Where appropriate, we've included remarks from the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, to reveal the projected financial impact. But it's important to understand that even CBO estimates can be manipulated and are only projections. Therefore, it's best to view these estimates as a general guide and not set in stone. In theory, the legislation we selected has a shot. At a minimum, bringing paired legislation to a vote in the Senate is a way to affirm how a senator feels about the subject, so they're on the record come election time. UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jim, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G. and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Quickie One, a twofer for First Nations. All right, let's start with something old, as in the oldest problem in the nation, our original sin. A substantial amount of funding progress was made during the pandemic to allocate funding to federally recognized Native tribes. It remains to be seen how much long-term impact the funding will have to bring health and human services to reservations that almost universally experience high levels of poverty and a host of systemic health issues. Sadly, there isn't much pending legislation with a real shot at making a substantial difference to Native people right now. But there are two bills, H.R. 1688 and H.R. 5444, that made it through the House and can easily be adopted by the Senate. H.R. 1688 is titled the Native American Child Protection Act, and it is essentially a reauthorization and revision of programs that support the investigation of child abuse and neglect and relevant treatments. Now, one thing I like about this bill is that it pulls in tribal organizations to facilitate these services. So in this regard, it's less paternalistic than the legislation that it seeks to update. Here are some of the key provisions. One, provide advice, technical assistance, and training to urban Indian organizations. Two, develop certain technical assistance materials for Indian tribes, tribal organizations, and urban Indian organizations. And three, develop model intergovernmental agreements between tribes and states to prevent, investigate, treat, and prosecute incidents of family violence, child abuse, and child neglect involving Indian children and families. 
The primary sponsor of the House bill is Representative Ruben Gallego, a Democrat out of Arizona, and the bill is somewhat unique in that it has a raft of bipartisan co-sponsors, most of which come from states that are heavily populated by Native peoples. H.R. 1688 was introduced and passed in 2021 and reported to committee this year without amendment. Basically a no-brainer that enjoyed popular support because it's basically a better version of prior legislation that theoretically places more control in the hands of tribal services. As we heard from tribal officials, tribal advocates, and government representatives at our July hearing, H.R. 1688 will improve health and welfare outcomes of Native children by reauthorizing and modernizing existing programs and incorporating culturally appropriate treatment services into those programs. Regardless of how popular a bill might be, there's always a question of cost. Because, you know, we have to save as much money as we can for the Pentagon. Anyway, further proof that this is a no-brainer, the CBO stated that, quote, the estimate of federal costs is unchanged, end quote. The bill does call for the establishment of an advisory board made up of tribal officials with expertise in child abuse and neglect to report on outcomes and advise on any policy changes in the out years of the bill. Again, it's such a small thing, but it helps move in a less paternalistic fashion and puts more power in the hands of tribal organizations that understand how issues facing children on reservations are substantially different than what most children in the United States experience. There's also language that suggests that funding be allocated to hiring a caseworker in each tribal area, though it's unclear how these funds were previously appropriated. Now, in a follow-up to our residential schools episode from a couple of weeks ago, any legislative initiatives affecting Native peoples in the U.S. should also incorporate H.R. 5444, the Truth and Healing Commission on Indian Boarding School Policies Act. Now, as we discussed in the episode and in conveying our friend John Kane's sentiments, this is really a ceremonial bill with no teeth. It simply calls for guidance on how best to approach the process of uncovering and documenting marked and unmarked graves of indigenous Alaskan and Hawaiian Native children who died at residential schools. Or, as we said in the episode, the bare fucking minimum. Running out of sponsors, today's episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Sarah C. Quickie 2. Speaking of the bare fucking minimum, restoring and improving the Voting Rights Act. All right, let's go big. A couple of shows back, we talked about how the country has been on a consistent and ugly trajectory since ushering in a wave of progressive reforms in the 60s and part of the 70s. Surge to the right, hold. Surge to the right, hold. One of the ways these forces have been able to drag the country steadily to the right is by chipping away at landmark legislation like the Voting Rights Act. So in 2013, you might recall that the Supreme Court declared a portion of the original bill unconstitutional and eliminated it from the act. In a nutshell, the court eliminated something called pre-clearance. Technically, what it was killing was a specific formula that carved out areas of the country that had a historic proclivity to limit access to voting or outright disenfranchisement. The argument is that this provision was selective and unnecessary in the modern era. So I'm not going to argue that because the bottom line is that since its passage, this provision has been updated several times and renewed for subsequently longer and longer periods of time. That was probably the biggest mistake. Knowing that someday a conservative court might look to target the selectivity of this provision, it should have been codified into permanent law across the board decades ago. 
So presumably, Democrats couldn't imagine a scenario where Republicans would attempt to restrict access or roll back key provisions of such important legislation. What did you think was going to happen? Before we get to the specifics of the bill, pre-clearance is an interesting topic. Essentially, this was a process that election boards had to go through to justify any changes in voting procedures. For decades, it prevented states from substantial changes that weren't widely communicated or created artificial barriers to voting. And it worked. In theory, Congress should have acted a long time ago to institutionalize this measure across the board, but for some reason they left it open to an extreme interpretation that this process was selective and therefore arbitrary. Honestly, it's not a bad argument. It really shouldn't be selective. It should be universal. And I'm oversimplifying things a bit, but the most important thing Congress can do is push aggressively to pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2021. The House version, H.R. 4, did indeed pass, and it's unconscionable that the Senate cannot get this done. The political argument against it has little to do with the Supreme Court decision. Instead, Republicans have made it a state's rights argument, saying that a federal arbiter of what's fair is an infringement on a state's ability to govern itself. It's stupid. They're stupid. But they're clever because since 2013, the Democrats haven't had enough control of Congress to do what's needed to protect voting access. That being said, the John Lewis bill codifies the circumstances under which the Department of Justice must approve changes to voting practices. And it's pretty generous, if you ask me. Mm, no one did, but go ahead, continue. According to the bill, the following criteria would invite DOJ intervention if... 15 or more voting rights violations occurred in the state during the previous 25 years, 10 or more violations occurred during the previous 25 years, at least one of which was committed by the state itself, or three or more violations occurred during the previous 25 years, and the state administers the elections. Right, so it doesn't call out individual states, which does make this more universal, and it sets a pretty high threshold for fuckery, so it really shouldn't be a problem in anyone's estimation. The act would also allow the attorney general to request federal observers in areas where there's a threat of racial discrimination. These and other provisions help to finally close the gap left open from the original act and is named for this guy. In a democracy, the right to vote is the most powerful, non-violent tool we have. John Lewis, who fought his entire adult life for voting rights. Yet even after he passed, with the Democrats in charge of both houses and the White House, the Democrats were unable to move Republicans in the Senate to a 60-person majority. Again, this argument being their primary rationale as stated by Republican Senator Mike Rounds. For most of us, we've looked at it. We simply disagree that the federal government should be that directly involved in monitoring uh, and directing the states as to how they do their electoral processes. The government shouldn't be involved in how elections are managed in this country. The federal government shouldn't manage the national elections process. The government doesn't belong in elections. Yeah, okay. See, when you say it like that over and over, you realize how stupid it sounds. I'm not even going to bother you with the CBO estimates because this is about enfranchisement and democracy. So spend whatever you need. Hi, 
play on, fuckers. Just a quick reminder that we're supported in three ways, all related to coffee. And with my schedule, it's fair to say that I'm more coffee than person by now. So the first way to support the show is by purchasing our organic, fair trade, shade-grown, bird-friendly, and native roasted coffee in four different blends. Unfuck your morning, unfuck your afternoon, a decaffeinated unfucking, and mellow Maynard. Ground or whole bean available only in the United States. Just go to unftr.com slash shop. Or you can become a member over at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. We have a few different levels from curious all the way to insane, and it's a way to really join forces with this show and help us in our effort to take over the world. Or you can just leave us a tip on buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR by buying us a cup of coffee. You don't have to commit to a long-term relationship. It's just coffee, just casual. When you boil it all down, what does a man really need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. And Quickie 3, Reefer Madness. No chance either of these marijuana bills passes, and that's a shame. Regardless of one's public health stance on marijuana, these bills are really important in terms of justice and practicality. So talking about ganja, Mary Jane, Reefer the Kind, Strange, Dope, Chronic, brings out a lot of emotion in everyone, except the people who smoke weed. Hey bud, let's party. <laughs> The first Mary Jane bill that is a must and worth fighting for from a justice perspective is H.R. 3617, the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, known as the Moore Act. Yeah, that's right. The debate to legalize cannabis is once again before lawmakers. This would be the second time that a federal marijuana bill is on the table. The bill known as the Moore Act would remove cannabis from a federal controlled substance list and eliminate criminal penalties associated with the drug. So there are a few technical provisions in the bill, and I always find this shit fascinating because it shows you just how many chefs are in the kitchen when you're cooking up a bill. Things like replacing statutory references to marijuana to cannabis, publishing demographic data on cannabis business owners, and directing certain offices to study the impact of recreational cannabis and things like driving and working. The more important parts of the act are the following provisions. Establishes a trust fund to support various programs and services for individuals and businesses and communities impacted by the war on drugs. Prohibits the denial of federal public benefits to a person on the basis of certain cannabis-related conduct or convictions. Prohibits the denial of benefits and protections under immigration laws on the basis of a cannabis-related event, e.g. conduct or conviction. Establishes a process to expunge convictions and conduct sentencing review hearings related to federal cannabis offenses. Of course, it also includes tax provisions to make sure the government gets something out of this, but that had to be expected. So, for context, here's what the ACLU has to say about supporting this bill. The Moore Act addresses the collateral consequences of federal marijuana criminalization and takes steps to ensure the legal marketplace is diverse and inclusive of individuals adversely affected by prohibition. The legislation begins by removing or descheduling marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act. This provision alone will have a significant impact as it will decriminalize marijuana at the federal level while enabling states to set their own regulatory policies without threat of federal interference. This facet of the bill is especially important given that 17 states have legalized adult use of marijuana and 36 states in the District of Columbia have legalized the use of medical marijuana. 
Descheduling also protects non-citizens from immigration consequences due to marijuana activity, including non-citizens working in state legal marijuana marketplaces. The bill also prevents the government from using past marijuana use as a basis for denying federal benefits like SNAP and TANF, student financial aid, or security clearances needed to obtain government jobs, end quote. The main sponsor of this is Jerry Nadler, and it's been really vetted on its way to approval in the House. Transportation, oversight and reform, natural resources, ways and means, education and labor, agriculture and energy, and commerce committees have all put their grubby hands on this thing in the House, and it's still fucking made it through for a successful vote. In fact, on April 1st of this year, it passed the House by a vote of 220 to 204. And if you jumble those numbers around, you can make 420, man. <laughs> As you can imagine, this was essentially along party lines, although three Republicans crossed over and two fucking Democrats voted against it. Henry fucking Cuellar, of course, and some whack-ass white dude from New Hampshire named Chris Pappas, which is Greek for guy no one invites to parties. Here's a portion of his statement. I'm disappointed that the full House was not given a chance to support the bipartisan amendment I submitted to address these issues, including explicitly preventing violent felons, organized crime leadership, or anyone who has been found guilty of trafficking fentanyl from being let out of prison or having their federal records expunged. Blah, 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 blah. The law doesn't let violent criminals, gang leaders, or dealers of fentanyl out of prison, you fucking moron. Maybe that's why nobody considered your stupid fucking amendment this time or any of the other times you brought it up. Just another pandering dickhead who wants to look tough on crime in a state where fucking anything goes. But there's another thing that you should know on fuckers. It's about the Republicans. What? what? One of the three Republicans that crossed over to vote yes on this bill was... Come on, man. Out with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, weed. Get the fuck out of here. Oh my God, of course, Gates. But why do I feel like he's the only one who literally did it for all the wrong reasons? I know, I hate it. Anyway, the House version is a thoughtful and considered bill that would be taken up in its entirety at some point in the Senate if the Democrats can ever get their shit together. I don't know, maybe eliminate the filibuster or just put together a comprehensive plan to fucking vote more Democrats into the Senate. More than likely, you'll see this again in the next Congress, and the one after that, if we're being realistic. Before we get to the other really important marijuana bill, I want to review the CBO analysis. Here's just a couple of highlights. CBO estimates that over the 2022 to 2031 period, H.R. 3617 would reduce time served by current and future inmates by 37,000 person years. H.R. 3617 would increase the number of people eligible for federal benefits compared with current law. That change would increase direct spending for federal benefit programs by $344 million over the 2022-31 to 31 period and reduce revenues by $6 million over that same period. But CBO and JCT estimate that H.R. 3617 would increase revenues on net by about $8.1 billion over the 2022-31 period by creating an occupational tax on cannabis producers and warehouse operators and by increasing compliance with business income taxes. It would also create a new opportunity trust fund and would appropriate to the fund amounts equivalent to the net revenues received from the occupational tax and from excise taxes on cannabis products. CBO estimates that about $7.8 billion would be appropriated to the fund over the 2022-31 period 
of which the DOJ would spend about $3.4 billion to provide job training and legal aid, among other services, to people harmed by what was termed the war on drugs. Talk about the bare fucking minimum again. Finally, H.R. 3617 would reduce the Bureau of Prisons costs by reducing both the number of people in federal facilities and the amount of time that they serve. CBO estimates that the provision would result in net savings of about $800 million over the 2022-31 to 31 period. So, I don't know, maybe we could just get rid of private prisons altogether if we're going to reduce the population in prison. Oh, God, what a thought. Now, I did think it was interesting to see how the CBO measured this in both budgetary terms and human terms by estimating the reduction in time served by current and future inmates. So the MORE Act is mostly about the human and justice side of things, even though there are operational and business-related aspects as well. Strictly from a business perspective, though, the other bill that is essential is H.R. 1996, known as the Safe Banking Act. This is the key ingredient to legalizing the business of weed. As it stands, marijuana businesses are technically all illegal. I think that most unfuckers know this, but it's worth mentioning quickly. See, federal law supersedes state law except where specified. So while a number of states have legalized medical and or recreational marijuana, it's still technically unlawful under federal statutes. But companies and states get away with it because the feds are essentially turning a blind eye while it figures out where they really want to go with this. So that's your first hint that this is all a fucking joke. All right. Some people have to play little games. You play yours. The practical issue this act cures is that banking is a federal enterprise. Right now, it's nearly impossible for cannabis businesses to bank because federal regulations prohibit depository institutions from taking this money, so it's not insured by the FDIC. And because there's no banking transparency, it also makes these businesses ripe for money laundering, which is clearly an unintended consequence of leaving cannabis businesses unbanked. Without this piece, cannabis business owners, who can really only deal in cash, also remain in danger of being targeted by violent criminal activity. So this bill, proposed by Representative Ed Perlmutter, would bring the cannabis industry into the regular economy. Obviously, there are those who look at this and understand that this is also a way for the government to more closely track revenues and extract taxes. Yes. But that's the cost of doing business. No one is clean here. The bottom line is that these two bills consider the angles and avenues necessary to bring weed fully into the mainstream. This bill, by the way, passed the House for the sixth fucking time. But it's unlikely to be considered in the Senate on its own until the Moore Act goes first. By the way, did you know that the House has a cannabis caucus? No. And do you know who the co-chair of the cannabis caucus is? Go on. Earl fucking Blumenauer, baby. I'm telling you. Hey, Earl, how long you been at this? I've been working on this literally for 50 years. Uh, Oregon was the first state to decriminalize. God, I love this fucking guy. So originally I had planned to do sort of honorable mentions at the end of the episode, a whole bunch of legislation pending that makes a lot of sense. And it ranges from LGBTQ plus rights to uh, more reforms for native peoples to small business reform, just a, a lot of really good stuff that's pending and shouldn't really have a problem passing the Senate 
shouldn't have a problem really with anybody, whether it's polls, the Senate, Congress, getting to the White House desk, nothing, right? But it was getting a little unwieldy for a quickie, as you know it often does. So instead, what I decided to do is at the end of every normal unfucking episode, I've decided to include one piece of pending legislation that kind of fits our requirements from today and makes a lot of sense for the country going forward. I think it's super important to have an understanding of the sausage-making process and see just how far and wide the interests in this country really are. And I'm only coming at it from a left perspective, so remember that for every progressive legislative reform, there are probably two shitbag policies being worked in Congress and in state houses across the nation from Republicans. The one obvious takeaway to me is how shitty the Senate is. When you look at all of the work that goes into making, amending, and passing a bill in the House, it's really impressive. And we've talked about the Senate as a deliberate cooling mechanism, but it's become the place where progress really does go to die, and it's such a shame. I get it on the big bills, right? Because there's a lot of moneyed interest and lobbying behind it, and there's only a hundred of these motherfuckers, and it's hard to wrestle them out of their positions and their six-year terms and the power of incumbency and all of that, right? So you got HR1 for the people, HR3 prescription drug reform, HR4 voting rights, HR5 for equality, six for the dreamers, seven for paycheck equality, and on and on. These are the democracy salvation bills, the big fights for justice. But there are literally scores of smaller bills that do more than just name a fucking post office that should make it through regardless of party affiliation. If I could only pass two bills, it would be H.R. 1 for the people and H.R. 4 John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Because getting money out of politics and reducing barriers to voting is how all of the other stuff eventually happens. Because for every no vote on something important to the working class, there's usually a dollar figure behind it, or perhaps thousands of disenfranchised people who weren't able to have their voices heard. As a mentor of mine always used to say, it's a process, not an event. Here endeth the quickie. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, 99, what's shaking? Um, I don't know. I don't have anything. <laughs> what a fucked up week. These short weeks kill me. Because I gotta be gone on Friday. Fun stuff. I'm going for a wedding. And we lost Monday. Mm-hmm. And everything just seemed to be so just hyper focused and, you know, two and a half days of work in between. It's just, this week was just madness. Yeah, me too. Who's getting married? Somebody. Who? Family member. Why don't you just like give their whole name, social security number. And where we're going. Yeah. And where yeah. the reception is. You, the number of your hotel room. Not a problem. Okay. We'll put it in show notes. Okay. Sounds good. I, I looked at the uh, the timestamp. I knew we were in here for a while because I think we lost about 60 pounds collectively, sweating mm-hmm. our asses off, putting together in our no air filtered studio. Sorry about that. It What was it, like an hour 44 or something like that this week? Yeah. Oh boy. Show notes is getting out of control, everybody. That's all on me, by the way. And I mean, 99 puts together this miraculous, you know, list of just incredible emails and feedback. And I I just can't help but go, but just get after it and talk to people. 
So I know I know show notes is getting nuts, but I I love it. I, I I just love sitting here and working through it because I'm so inspired by the ideas and the comments and and listen, you always have the opportunity to turn it off, right? I mean, you don't have to listen to all of show notes. That's it's just you know it's optional. But I'd be curious to hear what everybody's feedback is if anybody has any thoughts on how we're letting show notes spin wildly out of control. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to hear the playback. Were we at least coherent or had we really lost our minds by the end? No, it was good. I, I mean, it's funny. I laugh. I always laugh because I laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> and you make me laugh. So. Is there some Manny magic in there? Yeah, you know, he puts his little touches in. I, this one, you know, I don't think he had the mental energy to we didn't leave slog him a lot of through. Time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but well, beautiful um, as always. I, I hope... Everybody's cool with this little downshift to look at specific legislation. I'm not even sure I properly conveyed why I wanted to do this. But, you know, the spirit of it is that we have really big problems. It's a really big country. And the words of a few of our listeners who were like, hey, you know, fuck you, man. I'm in a really red state and I'll take a moderate Democrat. Like, I'll take a Beto O'Rourke in Texas. I'll take anything compared to the shit hand that I'm being dealt in this state. And please don't tell me to just fucking move, which we never would. So I totally get that. And so you're looking at these congressional representatives that go from, you know, somebody as bright as Jamie Raskin all the way down to a Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's a big country and we've got really smart members of Congress and really fucking stupid members of Congress. But if you look at who's proposing what, and you look at the bills that actually kind of see the light of day in terms of, you know, making it into committee or, you know, having a vote taken on it. A lot of these really are very thoughtful bills. Think about how many steps that these marijuana bills have had to go through. I know that people are super frustrated. Earl Blumenauer, as you heard in that clip, has been after this for 50 fucking years. I mean, he's been advocating this for a half a goddamn century. And we know that it has destroyed so many pockets of this country with the criminalization aspect of it has destroyed families, lives from a multi-generational perspective. It has wrecked so many individuals, so many families. And yet you can kind of see when you back up from it, like what takes so long. It's not as easy as one would hope because we've built up a system, an entire system designed to criminalize it and to punish it. And we're just not fucking ready because we, we layered so many bricks in our way. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. I just wanted to, to back up from everything, to zoom out a little bit and say, the big stuff, we have to have the courage to either get rid of the filibuster. There's no courage there for that. So we can work beyond, well, we can't even do that when we have a mansion or, or a Kirsten Cinema or a Bob Menendez sitting there. Like The hard work still needs to be done at an electoral level to change the calculus in the Senate without a doubt. Because even if we wanted to get rid of the filibuster, Joe Manchin's not going to allow it. He said that very, you know, explicitly, right? So it can't happen, right? We've got this, this you know, fuckhead in West Virginia driving his fucking fancy cars on the way to his yacht and uh, phoning it in whenever he just has to say no to something. But you got to bring up the bills one by one and take a vote. Here's what I would do with Joe Manchin. Because I think weed is probably as popular in West Virginia as it is in other places. 
Yeah, I mean, West Virginia University is there. There you go. <laughs> sure, every student there wants to smoke weed legally. If you're not, if you're at West Virginia University and uh, you're an out-of-stater, which I doubt, make sure you register to vote. I know a handful of New Yorkers who went there. For real? Yeah. What was wrong with them? I don't want to get into that. Okay. Were they Mountaineers? Is that their thing? I don't even know. I don't know. It'd be great if their teams were like the coal miners and they were all oh like God. hacking up along on the field. But, you know, bottom line is I would introduce every possible measure that I could if I was Schumer and have a video or audio clip of Manchin voting no to all these unbelievably popular things. And then I would spend as much money as the DNC could possibly muster against him in the state when it comes time for him to fucking, you know, get out of here with those no votes and just overlaid with pictures of him driving his fancy car and hanging out on his fucking yacht. I mean, this guy's, first of all, he's not even a Democrat, right? He's, But he's not even a, a, a representative of, of anybody. I mean, he represents quite literally his own interests. Go to The Intercept and search Mansion and read the dozens of articles talking about how unbelievably corrupt this guy is and how every single thing that he has done in his business career and political career has been to benefit his personal financial statement. Period. End of story. So we got to get rid of the filibuster, but it ain't going to happen with this fucking guy. And the Democrats, you know, they got to they got to get some courage. Right. And, and start fucking taking these people out. Maybe someone just needs to give Joe Manchin some weed. Maybe he's never smoked before. You might have just hit on something, right? Get everybody in the Senate baked. Can you know? I like would, lock the doors, have, well, gonna, Batman style, and <laughs> fucking just drop like a weed bomb in the middle of the Senate and just have them all, and then have them. I think vote. that's technically domestic terrorism, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm talking consensually, like. Smoke it, and if you don't like it, fine. Say no. I'm Give up for shot. the domestic terrorism side because that's like the, it's like the most lovely form of terrorism that you could ever imagine. <laughs> What'd you do? I got I got the Senate high. Yeah, but what if they have asthma? Hopefully they, hopefully at least fifty of them have underlying conditions. Yikes! Yikes is right. I have a question. Yeah. Why do all these bills still say Indian? Yeah, it's a really good question, and and they. But it's something that the community itself wrestles with. Like, even when we quote from native media and it's Indian country today, like, it's a problem. John Cain was telling us about how the Seneca Nation of Indians, SNI, was just emblazoned on everything that's up there. And, and there's a movement to try and change that as well over to native people. So, yeah, I feel it's stuck. I, for like the Indian country, for like legacy things like that, I figure, like, okay, that's the case. But if we're writing these new bills, why not just change it? Doesn't seem that hard. Uh, I, Put it yeah, in parentheses if they have to until we just change everything over. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the text of the bill, the new stuff, is more appropriate. But it also, in in being more appropriate, it's speaking to the old bills. Like this is updating the Indian Removal Act, and it has to specifically say that you know okay. in order to update the U.S. Code. Um, but I don't think that our government is thinking as much about that as native governments are. <laughs> clearly, oh, that's so shocking. Clearly. Yeah. So, considering we just got rid of the Washington Redskins. Right. So anyway. The fact that we ever had anything called the Indian Removal Act is like 
fucking amazing, it's right? It's so, it's like. All right, say it again. Indian Removal Act. Can you imagine? Like, what if it was just like the Jew Removal Act? <laughs> it I is mean, pretty, right? Well, well yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's fucked up. My God, I hate this all. So stupid. <laughs> just let us smoke weed and let Native people not. Yeah, and let everybody vote. Yeah. Without having to fucking jump through hoops and hurdles and like a lot of the argument on the right about states' rights is so tedious to me. And the fact that we're not putting that together in the discourse, like we're just going to let that stand. States' right. No, these are federal fucking elections. Congress, yes, you represent that district and that district was drawn by the state legislature, but it's to represent the federal fucking government. Like there's nothing local or state there's no state's rights in how a federal fucking election should be managed. If they want that, then there should be a provision that says, okay, if you don't agree, here's X amount of money and you can move. We'll just give you it. That's nice. Yeah. Out of the country, you mean? Like, get the fuck out of here? No, out of the state. Oh, out of the so state. It's like, right. fine, you don't like it? Go somewhere else. But we'll, we'll, yeah, sure, we'll give you money. That's what they have to do. You know, the problem is that it, it the, the state's rights argument and all the other arguments that they put up against it sound sort of compelling until you scratch under the surface a little bit. Uh, and states' rights is just always the fallback for so mm -hmm. many racist policies through history. I mean, it, it literally goes back to Calhoun. I mean, these were the arguments that were being made prior to the Civil War. States' rights. States' rights to what? Fucking own a person? Like, we're still talking about that shit? Come on. I saw an article about prisoners being, like, leased out to work at places. And people are like, that's called slavery. That's modern slavery. Yeah, the majority report just did something on a some fucking ice cream shop owner who was just like, they got to loosen up regulations on uh, uh, child labor. <laughs> like, what? Because oh, no. I can't get people to work because they're getting paid better elsewhere. The guy literally fucking said that. It was like, you just said the answer, you fucking moron. What did what we... Anyway, so back to voting rights. The, the states' rights arguments obscures the fuckery that's really going on and and understand how important this pre-clearance concept is because what it's enabled them to do is remove official polling places from predominantly black neighborhoods think about that right making making it harder for you to actually get there getting rid of mail in ballots that's absurd it's fucking ridiculous there is no cases of voter fraud in any of that they're making you show some sort of federal ID. Well, let, you know, there are people in this country that don't drive. There are people in this country that just don't have a picture ID. And it should be more their right to not have that than to vote. I mean, so these are the things that they're doing to actually disenfranchise people without technically disenfranchising them. And that's what preclearance is always fixed, at least since the Voting Rights Act. Because that's how it was. So the Supreme Court's argument, actually, in their in the majority opinion, they said, well, this doesn't matter anymore because we're past that. Nobody does that stuff anymore. Meanwhile, they were doing it all along and it was getting rejected because of preclearance. So to get rid of the thing that was preventing everybody from doing it by saying that it hasn't happened. Well, yes, it's because they've been preventing it. It's not that there wasn't an attempt. It didn't happen because we had these fucking measures in place. It wasn't something from history. It was something from every day all the time. That act is so fucking important, but just as important. It's almost like one doesn't matter without the other. The For the People Act to really 
tackle campaign finance reform in this country is just as critical because you can amend all of the other you know, policy you want in this country, but if we still allow money to speak the loudest, then a lot of it doesn't really matter. So those two things kind of have to go together. The problem, the pickle and the conundrum that we're in as the electorate is that we need these people who are themselves millionaires and the prot and the only reason they're sitting there is because somebody spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on them and so they're quasi behold i mean it's just it's a bad bad situation so that's why we're always advocating for a progressive revolution none of this happens without that that's the most important piece of the puzzle you have to get progressives on the ballot we have to oust the conservative democrats in safely blue districts so to all of our you know red state progressives and all the progressives living within territories that might be purple i get it a democrat is better than nothing but in very easily held blue congressional districts we gotta flip them we gotta flip them anyway you say blue funny blue yeah blue <laughs> blue blah yeah <laughs> blah blah a blah district mm-hmm not a purple district. Purple, purple. There's Say a lot of things funny, but I didn't know how funny they were until we started this show and sorry. everybody told me how funny. Reservoir. Reservoir is just because I'm cultured. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I got a lot of fucking culture. Uh-huh. I got a lot of fucking class. You didn't let me talk about what I was going to say. What were you going to say? There's a video of Barney mixing paint, mm. red and blue, and he says, purple, purple. So every time you say purple, I think of it. Well, as always... Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Wait for it. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. <laughs> purple, 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 purple. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Weed and distributed by Earl Blumenauer. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR. Pod. <laughs> Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. Read our essays on UNFTR.substack.com. And remember, Substack will always be free because all of our content is free. All right, 99. Let's wrap this up and I'll catch you, catch you on the flip side. I just wanted to say a final word to Shoot. our coffee drinkers. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It still tastes good iced. So if you want to make a pot, you put it in the fridge. You don't need those fancy iced coffee things. So it's summertime now. If you're a nice coffee gal like me, you know, get a Maynard, a Maynard iced latte. Love it. Do that. <laughs> the end. The end. Bye. See ya.